Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we're discussing an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. My co-host today is Randy Coleman. Welcome back to the podcast, Randy. Thanks, Chris. And today we have a special guest, Brian Vaughn. He's a ReactJS core team member. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. We read the blog post recently about React 16.3 and some of the upcoming changes. Uh, it seems like there's just a lot happening right now, at least from the from like the external, non-internal core team point of view. It just seems like there's a lot changing and a lot of exciting stuff coming out. Uh, so we wanted to bring you in and uh, just ask about it and kind of get get the lowdown and, and get your perspective on it. So thanks for joining us. Sounds great. Yeah. So uh, So how long have you been involved with React and the core team? Um, well, I've been on the core team for about a year and a half now, and that's, I guess I, I've been involved with React for, you know, a year or two longer than that, but not as a contributor, just as a, as a user. Cool, cool. So, so, uh, like, you know, peel back the veil a little bit. What, what is it like to, to be on a team that's like, you know, working on a very large public, uh, open source project? It's really intimidating and it's also really rewarding. So it is sort of an equal measure, you know, when you, when you make a mistake or when you don't. When you don't know something, it's very visible. And so it's easy, easy to sort of get intimidated by that. But it's also really awesome because, you know, you get to, like, we get to build things that uh, hopefully improve, you know, developer day-to-day experience on a, on a huge scale. So it's it's very exciting. Uh, it's something that I like about open source. And it's definitely sort of an order, a new orders of magnitude bigger than any of my personal open source experience prior to joining the team this been. So it's great. Yeah, that's totally awesome. Uh, you know, we've we've been using it. We've really embraced React at our, our company in the last year and a half and have been helping other companies kind of utilize it and make make the most out of it. So, uh, you know, from from my perspective, that work that you do is, you know, super impactful for, for me personally and for the people that I work with. So, so thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let, let's dive into some of these upcoming features. Thanks for, for preparing some notes on it. But can you kind of explain like the progression towards async features in React? and some of the history of how that's kind of originated and where it's where it's kind of progressed and, and where we are today? Sure. So I joined the team, uh, like I said, about a year and a half ago, sort of in the middle of a big uh, push to rewrite um, version 16, which is dubbed Fiber. 16 had sort of a couple of motivations. Uh, one of them was sort of addressing technical debt. So this uh, has a lot of sort of aspects. We wanted to um, you know, add static typing with flow to the project to make it easier to maintain. We uh, sort of had a goal of making custom renders easier to build and, and, and maintain as well. You know, Facebook uses React DOM and React Native and, and React Art, but then there are other uh, third-party ones. And the, the process of building custom render in the past was pretty janky. And so we uh, introduced a new reconciler package and made this sort of uh, first-class part of the library. There was also a focus on making it smaller and faster. Uh, had some pretty good wins there with the first 16.0 release compared to the 15.6, I guess, prior release. Mm-hmm. Lots of stuff. And then, you know, another aspect of it was just sort of forward looking changes that we, things that uh, the, the team knew that we would need in order to support async, which is a future thing. Gotcha. So 16.0 is more like a laying the groundwork, getting that, those internal refactors ready to go and launch. Because from, from an outside perspective, uh, there wasn't a lot of new API introduction that, that impacted day to day. React development for the web uh, on 16.0. A lot of deprecations, though, definitely. There were some pretty cool things. There was, <laughs> the, you know, part of the re-architecting that came with 16 was to enable us to build some things that should be kind of trivial, but were difficult before. So, like, one of the most popular things for the 16 release was being able to return arrays or strings from render method. Yes, so, thank you for that. 
<laughs> that that ended up being, or it's it's a pretty easy thing to implement on the new architecture, but it was prohibitively difficult on the old one. So the the tech debt sort of unlocked these things. We also got sort of first class error handling with the error boundaries feature. We got first class portals, or there was uh, sort of a third party portal solution, but now it's built right in. We got streaming for SSR or for sorry for server side rendering. So there were there were other things that shook out of that. Gotcha. Was Fragment part of sixteen oh, or did that come later? Fragment was sixteen two, I think. Okay. Um, yeah, that's another kind of cool one where you can they all blow together. Yeah. Yeah, sixteen three also had a lot of really cool features that you know wouldn't have been possible or would have been very difficult to build on the old architecture. I think I thought it, you know I I, I thought it was I'll stick sort of high level on this, but I thought it would be worth sort of talking about the development process for sixteen just um, super briefly. The the way the team approached writing sixteen so completely re-implementing everything, essentially, but in a way that, like you say, is mostly transparent to the outside because there's a couple of nice features, but it didn't look like a totally new thing, which is, right. that was the goal, you know? We didn't we didn't want people not to be able to upgrade. Um, Facebook has a ton of React code and we didn't want to not be able to upgrade ourselves. The self-interest was there, but the interest for others was there too. Exactly. <laughs> so the way that the team approached it was sort of to aim for full feature parity with the new renderer. And so we did this by developing both um, the old, what we call the stack renderer, and the new, what we call fiber renderer together. So they were both in uh, Git, and we ran our test suite against both of them. And internally at Facebook, we used both of them. Um, the core team used the new one, and everyone else used the old one for a long time. And then we sort of ramped up the experiment so other people were using the old one as well. Huh. And then we just looked at things that broke, and then we fixed the things that broke. And we had uh, an old website, is Fiber Ready yet, which had a bunch of tests and sort of the status. Yeah, I remember that. But overall goal was to sort of run them in parallel until the new one exactly matched the old one and then get rid of the old one. Along the way of doing this, we developed a lot of cool infra that we we also blogged about a couple months ago, but it's a cool blog post. It included like uh, automation scripts for doing things that was really slow before for building and releasing. We set up sort of a test infrastructure. I think Dan mostly did this, but a test infrastructure. So every, every time we push to Git, our CI runs tests against development mode, prod mode source, and then also development and prod bundles that we ship to NPM. So we make sure we don't have any silliness in our build process that somehow breaks a feature. We also have some you know, automated metrics for if we slip up our bundle size and it gets too big because of the commit. And then we also introduced a pretty cool uh, feature flag system that sort of works in, in conjunction with uh, the fact that we're using Rollup, which I, I don't think I mentioned, but we're using Rollup now. This was a big part of the reason why 16 was able to get smaller. Nice. Rolling all of the files into a single, we call it like a, a flat bundle. And this is nice because for one, it's smaller. We can do like things like dead code elimination, but also it keeps people from having that temptation to reach in and muck with internals and then be broken by future updates. But this also lets us do a pretty cool thing with feature flags where we, if we want to try a new feature out, we'll define a feature flag. And then what we do is we build the open source bundle. We'll just turn that feature off. And then for the Facebook bundle, and we, we do typically do a separate bundle for Facebook. It's built from the same source, but we'll turn the feature flags on. Gotcha. And so this lets us be the first, the test bunnies or whatever for a new feature and make sure it works before we put it out and open. And that, that way, if we have, you know, churn, like we realize the API needs to change, people aren't uh, sort of getting whiplash from the change. That's awesome. And this all sort That's of shook awesome. out from the, the 16.0 process, I think. So that raises a question that I'm curious about. Which is, uh, you know, how do you balance like what the core team is doing and the, and the main direction of taking the product with what the community does and com- contributions from the community? Like, is there a good process for people to contribute to React or is it pretty kind of tied to the core team at this point? It's tough. 
um, it's tough to balance. We do have a couple of external contributors that are uh, really prolific and we're really appreciative of. In general, I think uh, this maybe is not quite the exact answer to your question, but if you're looking to contribute, I think the best like first steps would be to contribute to documentation. So we have another thing that sort of indirectly shook out of 16 is we have a new website for our docs that's built on top of Gatsby. All the docs live in Markdown in a separate repo. Um, the barrier to entry for contributing to that is, I think, significantly lower than React because you don't have to understand as much context and like future direction and stuff. So um, in general, I think if you're looking for a way to start contributing, that's a great way to sort of get your feet wet. Balancing uh, between Facebook needs and open source needs is, is dif- difficult. Um, we recently uh, created a RFC's uh, repo, which kind of helps a little bit with this. It gives us sort of a venue for proposing new features and getting feedback from the community and talking through pros and cons, and then also letting people propose things externally to share with the, the team. And it's a little more formalized than before where you just open a GitHub issue and hope for the best. But it's still tough because the core team is very small. There's fewer than 10 of us and there's, you know, millions of people outside. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. We try to prioritize the best we can, but it's sort of a case by case. Thing. Yeah, I remember reading a while back that because you don't actually server-side rendering at Facebook, if I understand it right, but yeah, that's something that people want from React. So how do you manage something like that where it's not something that you can dog food as, as well as some of the other features and still actually give the community what it needs? Like, how do you balance that? It's really hard. Yeah, that server-side rendering in, in specific is difficult. We, um, I think we, we lean on sort of community expertise, like the folks at, at Zite and, and, and Next, that they're doing some great work there. And you know, 16 does, we, we have a server render now and it has streaming support and some other things, but we don't, like you said, we don't use it directly because we have our own sort of PHP infra that does this. And so it does make it a lot harder to, to dog food. And that's the dog fooding of React is what typically makes it really good. And so we have that weakness. It's kind of an interesting dynamic because it's such a public, visible, widely used pro- project and it's really easy to kind of hurt somebody, you know, like, or, you know, hurt somebody's code or do something unintentional that, that messes some people up just because of that. So, like, I think, like you said earlier, the impact is amazing, but also the, the level of visibility and, and, yeah, it's pretty intimidating, I think, probably. Definitely. I'm really curious. You, 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 you know, you've mentioned that React 15 to 16 was pretty much a complete rewrite, and you have all these awesome new infrastructure pieces to help you with releasing and uh, you know testing new features. It seems like there, it almost seems like there's like a before and after story. Is is there anything that you would attribute that to specifically? Like, was there a culture change in how the React core team developed, or was just the team size growing? Um, I don't think there was a culture change. The team has a really good culture, and I'm thankful for that. That predates me for sure. The before and after is probably just yeah lessons, sort of lessons learned from part of the core team has been working on the project for several years, and they've accumulated a lot of knowledge and lessons. And then also growing the team gives us sort of more bandwidth to, to sort of put that knowledge to to practice. So like a lot of the automation stuff um, and the the testing stuff, uh, folks that are new to the team like. Uh, well, Dan's been on the team longer than I have, but he's relatively new compared to others. And then I worked on some of the build script and release script stuff. And this is just bandwidth that the team didn't have before, I guess. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it seems like the, it, it almost feels like there must have been some sort of like stock taking. These are the lessons we learned. If we were going to you know, completely revamp React and we have the chance to do it now, this is how we would do it. Is that a good characterization? Yeah, I, I, I think that probably is good. And like I said, we do have a blog post that's some a couple of months ago that, that kind of goes into more detail on that stuff. That's probably a good read if you're working on a larger uh, JavaScript project. You might find some interesting tidbits there. 
Awesome. Awesome. Um, so React 16.3 just came out. We're recording this in late April. It might be a few weeks until this gets released, but at the moment, it's very exciting to hear about these new things. It seems like the the big change that's that immediately impacts day-to-day development is the new lifecycle methods. Can you kind of explain where these came from and, you know, uh, why the old lifecycle methods led to led to problems? So before we do that, let's talk about what async is really quickly so that we can sort of set the context for the motivation. So just as like a, a brief overview, um, with the way that React now works, like 16 plus, work is sort of divided into two phases. Um, we call uh, render phase and commit phase. Um, the render, and this is a little low level, but I'll, I'll try to sort of just keep it, uh, I don't know, mid-level. It's good to understand the building blocks. So like render phase is the slower work. This is where most of the class component lifecycles are. This is where your render method gets called. This is where React sort of determines what changes have been made and then what mutations it needs to make to you know, native or the DOM. I guess I'll just talk about the DOM. That's the easiest to think about. React does the work of rendering and doing the diffing and deciding what changes it needs to make, but it doesn't actually do any any changes, any mutations. And what this lets it do is it uh, it means that the render phase work can be paused and resume. So maybe React will detect that it's running sort of close to that magic 16 millisecond buffer and it doesn't want to drop the frame rate and so it'll stop and pick back up on another tick. Or maybe a higher priority work comes in and React just basically says, oh, well, I'm just going to drop what I've done because I now have something more important to work on. And we can do that because we haven't modified anything. And then the commit phase which follows after a render phase finishes, is when changes are actually flushed to the DOM or to native. And the commit phase is fast. Uh, it has to be fast because we can't pause it. Um, you can't half update the DOM and then leave. And the commit, the commit phase is when we call the did mount or did update lifecycles. And so side effects, what we call side effects, which can be a lot of things, but essentially touching, you know, making an external function call, making an HTTP post request, all sorts of stuff. They're safe in the commit phase because we've sort of committed to, we've already made a change, but they don't belong in render. So this is, this is the way the work is d- divided. And the reason that we do this, I guess there's, there's maybe two high-level reasons. One is that we want React to be super responsive. So breaking up the slower pieces of work lets us avoid dropping frames and it lets React cooperate better with other JavaScript on the page. So for instance, you, you, know, you might have a video player that's JavaScript powered, but it's not in React. And so this, the, they cooperate better this way. And overall, this lets React feel more responsive to sort of high priority inputs like mouse clicks, keyboard events, and defer lower priority inputs like responses to HTTP requests, things like that that don't need to be processed immediately, just soon. And then the other aspect of async is sort of getting ahead of doing idle work and sort of working in advance. So for instance, like maybe you have some UI that's off screen or hidden, React could start rendering that and preparing it so that when the app needs it, it responds really quickly instead of having to sort of do the work later. So that's sort of what async is and why async. The reason why 16.3 added some new life cycles and sort of mentioned that we're going to soon be deprecating some of the older life cycles ties into this render render phase stuff. Basically, we looked at a lot of components inside of Facebook and a lot of components on GitHub and sort of identified some patterns across them that would be problematic for async rendering. I think uh, there was an RFC that goes into huge detail about this. I kind of don't really encourage anyone to read it at this point. It's very long. <laughs> we'll link it for the extra curious. But at a high level, you know, looking at these things, we found sort of three categories of problems. One is side effects in, uh, for instance, a component will mount or a component will receive props. So maybe you update a flux store 
Maybe you make a post request, an HTTP post request. Side effects are bad because, you know, they mean React can't interrupt to do higher priority work if you've already committed to something. Another thing uh, that's related is uh, memory leaks. So for instance, a lot of code would add event listeners in component will mount, expecting to be able to remove them in component will unmount. Okay. But if the component never actually mounts, React won't call component will unmount. It's important that React can be can really quickly drop low priority work if new part, higher priority stuff comes in. And you can't really quickly drop something if you have to traverse a whole tree and call lifecycles. So React just throws it away. But this means that you would leak. You would leak some sort of listener. And then another, uh, I guess the third category of thing is basically just uh, non-idempotent uh, function calls. So code that was written expecting the, the lifecycle hooks to be called sort of exactly once. But that's not the case. If we pause and, and, and get a higher priority thing, we might call... Uh, life cycles twice, um, you know, like a will receive props uh, render life cycle might be called more than one time per conceptual like DOM update. These problems we sort of identified, and we also recognize that they're they're not just async problems. They're actually sort of already problematic in terms of error handling and server side rendering. It's just these things are much less common. I feel like classic real time programming problems that, that happen on any platform. Yeah. So you know we. Uh, we identified these problematic patterns and we came up with, uh, we used the new RFC repository that I, that I mentioned earlier, and we came up with some newer life cycles that we thought more closely modeled what people were trying to do with the old life cycles anyway, but in a way that was safer and, and less likely to be misunderstood or to encourage misuse. And so like, you know, we, we made a get drive state from props, we made static which is can be a little painful for people making the transition, but we did that to discourage event listeners, for example. So like the, there were there was a lot of thought that went into making the newer life cycles um, safer. Yeah, that one being static, actually, I didn't even catch it first. Like it, it was, I might have been reading your your blog post about the new life cycle methods where it finally dawned on me, oh no, that one's static, actually. Yeah, interesting. I, I wasn't sure why it was, but that's cool. If it's, it discourages event listeners, that's kind of a neat design choice. Yeah, if you if you forget and attach it to the instance, we warn you in dev mode. Oh, nice! <laughs> a lot of dev warnings for stuff like that. Yeah, I gotta say your dev warnings are pretty stellar. You do a great job on the developer experience there for sure. So that's that's cool. Thank you. That's been a story for me with with React and and also Redux. Just uh, doing bad behaviors that are counter to the the goals of the of the like the render patterns. I usually get a warning when I'm doing things like that, and it helps. It's a as someone who's who only started using React like a year and a half ago, getting into it and learning it uh, has like the developer experience is very instructive to that. That's great. So, what's the upgrade path look like for these new lifecycle methods? Uh, I know your blog post goes into it in quite a bit of detail, um, and I recommend definitely reading that blog post to anybody who wants to see what these are. There's you got some really great examples there of here's some common patterns of things you might want to do, and here's how the old way looked, and here's what the new way looks like. So that's really awesome. But so, what is your upgrade path for this stuff? Like, how's the deprecation going to happen, and that kind of thing? Yeah, reading the blog post is a great first step. But the general upgrade path for React has long been. Um, fix dev warnings. And as long as you fix dev warnings, then each incremental upgrade should be smooth. And that's still the case. So if, if you're wanting to prepare for async, uh, as we release upcoming versions, um, just, just address the dev warnings. We added a new component in 16.3 that lets you sort of... Well, actually, let me, let, me go one step, let me go one step back. We haven't yet enabled deprecation warnings for the sort of unsafe... Um, deprecated life cycles. And the reason that we didn't do that in 16.3 is we wanted to give open source maintainers one release cycle to sort of get ahead of the warnings. But 
getting ahead of the warnings means upgrading from deprecated life cycles to new life cycles. And we didn't want to sort of cause every maintainer to have to release a new major version that drops support for anything older than 16.3. So we, we released a, a, a NPM package called React Lifecycles Compat, which is a polyfill. And this polyfill adds support for static get derived state from props and get snapshot before update to older versions of React, going back as far as version 14, honestly, probably 13. I haven't tested it, but it works with 14 plus. And this, basically, the, the goal here was that open source projects can start using new life cycles now. This encourages better practices anyway. It gets them in a place so that when we do release deprecation warnings, their users won't get a bunch of deprecation warnings and start filing bugs. And they don't have to drop support for older versions of React, which is just generally nicer on the community. Because while we want everyone to be evergreen with our React versions, we we understand that practically there's you know you can't always do that and it takes time. There's a caveat, which is that we we don't polyfill everything. So we've gotten some some questions saying, what about forward ref? What about create ref? Basically, uh, forward ref can't be polyfilled, unfortunately. But neither of these uh, new APIs uh, or the new context API are necessary for you to use in order to support newer and older versions of React. But the new lifecycles definitely are. So the polyfill is very narrowly scoped at the new life cycles. So, all right, the strict mode component that I mentioned, if you're a library author or an application developer and you want to sort of start preparing for async, you can use a new component we released called strict mode. And basically strict mode warns about not everything, but a lot of potentially problematic things within any components that are descendants of it. So we warn about unsafe life cycles. We warn about string roughs, which are problematic in some cases, we try to catch side effects by double invoking render method, like render phase methods during only in dev, not in prod. But we try to do things to help you uh, identify problems before you turn async on. So the, the way that you would use strict mode, for example, is maybe you would pick a small part of your application, like a widget or a couple of widgets, and you would wrap them in strict mode and you would fix all the warnings. And then once you've done that, you can sort of move strict mode up to wrap the next higher, you know, page or route or whatever it is until you wrap your whole application. So it's, it's a gradual opt-in thing. And strict mode does all of the same validations that async mode will do, but it doesn't actually render an async. So you can do this safely without worrying about breaking anything like uh, in production because strict mode basically is a no-op in production. It's just a dev thing. Okay. We also released a package called create subscription, which is sort of a little helper thing that lets you subscribe to async props. Uh, maybe you get an event dispatcher as a prop or an observable. Describe to the, uh, subscribe to these in a, in a way that's safe with async. I'll say that there's a couple of caveats for this package. Um, if, you're, if you're Redux, you should just use the context API. You shouldn't use subscriptions. It's not our solution for IO things that update infrequently. We actually have something else coming, which I, maybe I'll talk about in a minute, called suspense for that. But it is sort of a, a nice stopgap if you're if you have certain types of uh, events or observables or promises and you're struggling with how to sort of model them in an async world. I'd encourage you to check it out. There's there's docs and also you know if you have any questions, we're pretty responsive to issues on packages like that. So yeah, and then there's a video of Dan's talk from uh, Ryakov Iceland where he went through some of that stuff and he talked about suspense there as well. So that's definitely worth watching as well if you want to kind of see what what things might be coming down the road or what might be possible. So yeah. So what's the community response been to, to these new life cycles and other changes? Is like everything I've seen has been pretty positive, but I'm guessing there's, there's the people out there that aren't happy as well. You know, what, in general, what's it been like for you? There's been a lot of feedback. And so it's been a little bit of a fire hose at time trying to respond to it all, you know, on GitHub and Twitter and Reddit and Hacker News and whatnot. But overall, it's been 
I've been pleasantly surprised by how positive it was. And I think that's like a, a testament to React team members that have been on the team a lot longer than I have that have sort of invested a lot into the community and have sort of established a lot of goodwill that when when we do something that's a little painful like this, we have that sort of background. So people, they, they don't, it's not always this way. It's sometimes this way. But in general, I think the community has been really understanding there have been there has been some pushback. We had issues in RFCs filed about like why does the new static lifecycle work the way it does? Couldn't it do this instead? And there were a lot of lengthy discussions. I think good discussions because it's good to question things and it's good to get input and new ideas. And that's what the RFC repo is for. Um, but in general, I think it's it's been pretty positive. And we I think have especially tried to keep an eye on these venues like Twitter and and stuff to be responsive to help people. And we'll continue to do that because we understand that it's. It's a little daunting, um, especially if this is the first component or two that you updated. So we'll we'll sort of be there to, to upgrade with people as they have questions. Yeah, I, I got to say, you, you, you do a lot of work to try to make things as easy as possible for people, like with code mods and just even the the whole roadmap of how the, these problematic lifecycle methods are going to be deprecated. I mean, it's going to be, what, two or three release cycles before they're really fully deprecated. And, and even still, they're, I don't think they're going to be gone at that point because you just have the unsafe prefix on them, I think. And, you know, like the, the polyfill you talked about, the, the life cycles compat polyfill, like it seems like you put a lot of engineering effort into really trying to make this as smooth as possible for people. And like the, the focus on the library authors, I think, is really stellar. Just, you know, how can people release a, one version of their library that works on multiple versions of React, even though there's all these huge changes under the hood? That stuff's not easy to do. And so I commend you guys for, you're not all guys, I commend you all for, for putting the effort into that stuff. It really helps. And I think it really helps with the acceptance of the project and, and uh, people wanting to use it and trusting it and that kind of thing. So that's really cool. Thanks. Yeah, definitely. I've seen, you know, I've worked in, you know, we've all worked in lots of different frameworks where upgrading is painful, but it seems like, especially with like the support of library authors and releasing these compatibility modules, that there's a lot of care there. Like your team is not just thinking about was the best, what was the best API for this, uh, for this framework, but also what is the upgrade path for people moving from older versions of the framework to newer ones and not just like thinking about it, but actually shipping features code support for, uh, for that sort of work. So super appreciated. Well, thanks. So one more quick question for you. Um, what about React Native with, with this new async stuff? What's the roadmap there? So that's a little harder to answer. React Native is on a totally different release cycle than, than React DOM and the rest of the React family. The way that most React packages are released is sort of the, the, the core team at Facebook. Um, once we've decided we have like a good feature set for a minor or a bug fix release, we'll sort of bundle it together and we'll do... We have a, a syncing process where we pull the build internally and we run a huge suite of tests against it internally and we use it for a while and make sure it doesn't break any Facebook projects. And then assuming it doesn't and we're good to release it, we it's sort of it's very intentional when we publish it to NPM. React Native is published by the, the release manager for that is not even a Facebook employee. It's super awesome that that Mike and others sort of maintain this because it's 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 a lot of effort, but it's a little decoupled from the core team. And it's also rather than being sort of intentional based on features, it's based on a calendar date. It's monthly. So there's a little bit of a of a question in terms of when a certain feature will go in, in terms of when it lines up, when it's over. But in general, I think with async, there's some interesting implications for React Native that it might be a little early to talk about still. But one of the one of the motivations for the native, uh, sorry, for the async rewrite was to be able to support native better. Currently, the JavaScript portion 
of React Native runs in a totally different thread. So there's all the communication is async, and this is because JavaScript is too slow to run on the main thread. But now if React has this sort of scheduling system built into it, maybe it's not. And there's an effort that's going on right now with some React Native core members and I think Sebastian from the React team to sort of explore what a new different rendering model for React Native would look like. And they're sort of doing a similar thing, as I mentioned earlier, where this is being run in parallel with the, with the old renderer. But I don't know what their release cycle will be for that. Um, I'm not actually even sure what the timeline will be for async on DOM. So it's, it's a little bit of a, of a question. In general, though, the new life cycles are already available in React Native. So you can start using them and prepping for it. Strict mode is there. So like it's, you can already start like making use of the patterns in your components because your components shouldn't change when the renderer changes. But I don't know when the features will roll to the renderer yet. Yeah, I haven't upgraded to the latest React Native on one of my apps yet, but the version I was on was still pre-new pre lifecycle method, so I wasn't sure if there'd been another release that has those in there yet. So Yeah. I know they're often like their dependencies often like a beta version of React or something. So it's it's hard to tell when, when they're going to be built on a new version and whether you can safely upgrade yourself on your own project or not. So I think the most recent two React Native renderer releases are based on 16.3 with the new life cycles. Okay. So yeah, I think I'm still on like 54 or something like that. So is there any other things that we wanted to cover before we, we wrapped up? I would love to dive into suspense, but I think we're kind of at time for this one. So we might have to come back around and talk about that another time. That'd be awesome. What about the breakneck um, summary of what suspense is and what people can look forward to if they looked into it more? Breakneck summary. Dan demoed suspense at JSConf Iceland. There's a video blog slash blog post on the React site that gives a great demo of it. At a super high level, it's a nice sort of ergonomic syntax for specifying asynchronous dependencies that lets you sort of pause your rendering until data is loaded. And React can continue rendering everything else and then come back and finish that subtree once data has loaded. And this is cool because you can sort of specify data being loaded anywhere in the tree. You don't have to inject a lot of pass-through props. And the behavior while the data is being loaded in terms of when we show sort of loading spinners or how, how long we wait to do that is, is very configurable in a way that is a, just a really nice syntax. It makes testing a lot easier. It works for server-side rendering, which is super cool because we haven't had a story there in the past. And uh, it's coming soon. But that's... Nice. That's a good teaser. That's fantastic. That's that's such a common activity. You know, how do you... You know, what is what is your presented state when you're loading data? How, did, how do you reconcile all that? So super awesome that that's a big focus right now. Yeah. We're, we're really excited to start using it on some internal stuff too. Cool. Well, uh, well, let's let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, thank you so much, Brian, for joining us. That's been super awesome. You're super valued here. Um, is there any? If people want to reach out to you or ask questions, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Twitter is a good way. I also have my my email on my GitHub profile. So if you don't feel comfortable reaching out on quite as publicly as Twitter, you can always email me. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Randy, for joining me as well. You uh, want even more interesting. So we have a newsletter that, that Randy helps compile. Uh, we take interesting articles, a lot of React-related stuff, um, summarize them, put them in kind of an easy-to-consume newsletter. So sign up for that when you have a chance. It's codingzeal.com slash interestings, or you can follow us on Twitter at CodingZeal. Thanks, everyone.